today on Better News Radio with Pastor Ricky Alcantad. So, back when they had those stores that you could put things on layaway, right? You had an item, and it was yours, but you had to keep paying and redeem it. I had to buy it back, in a sense, to purchase it. Or maybe things are tough one holiday. Somebody goes into a pawn shop. They take a family heirloom, pawn it, buy Christmas presents, wait for that next paycheck, buy it back. That's the sense of the word redemption. A price is paid in order to restore someone, to rescue them, to restore them, and to give them a future again. Hope in God. a toy that you cherish the most, but you lost it for some reason? After searching for it for a while, you can do whatever it takes to recover it. Do you realize how much God values you and sees you as his priceless possession? Pastor Ricky describes today how God has protected you from eternal death. Jesus, God's only son, was sent into this world to die on the cross in order to atone for all of our sins. We can now have a relationship with the Father and experience eternal life thanks to Jesus. Now let's join Pastor Ricky in the book of Ruth, chapter 4, as he begins his message, God's Kindness in Human Form. Please turn to Ruth, chapter 4, today. Now, we've been spending our time in the book of Ruth, and we have seen something of a Hallmark movie, as it were, if you want to call it that. We've seen a bitter old lady have her heart strangely warmed by the kindness of God. We have seen a young widow who is an outsider be welcomed in to a new people by the kindness of God. We have seen a rich man of character who maybe thought that marriage had passed him by find a worthy woman in the kindness of God. This entire book is about the kindness of God, but Ruth 4 adds an important, a key element in this trajectory. So if you think of the book of Ruth, chapters one through four, if you think where it starts, it starts with emptiness in chapter four, in chapter one, in chapter four, it ends with fullness. So emptiness to fullness through the kindness of God, but there's an important addition Ruth four makes, that that kindness of God comes through a person. That kindness of God comes through a redeemer. We see in Ruth chapter three, we're gonna review this briefly, Boaz's words to Ruth. Ruth asks him for redemption and he replies in verse 11, now my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. But then the wrinkle is introduced into the plot here, a plot twist as it were. We are unaware. We as an audience are taken aback to read verse 12. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If, I will re- if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, or the language literally is, if he's not glad, if he's not more than willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. So Ruth 4 is the resolution to this cliffhanger. If you think of the Ruth, book of Ruth like a TV series, it ends with a cliffhanger where you're like, yes, they're going to be together forever. He's going to redeem her. Everything's going to work out. And all of a sudden, plot twist, there's this other guy. See you next week. Now, in order to understand Ruth 4, you need to understand uh, the answer to a crucial question. What is a redeemer? 
Now, you may have heard that song. We may have sung that, that, that uh, sung a song that had the word Redeemer in it, or you may have heard it in a Bible study, but you may not be familiar with it. For many uh, folks, redeem or redemption just means salvation. It just means, you know, God redeemed us, God saved us. There's not really any particularness to that word. But in the Old Testament, the word redemption was very specific. There was a group of laws in the Old Testament related to redemption. And the word redemption literally means to buy back, to purchase back, right? So think of back when we used to have Kmart. Or maybe, do we still have Kmart? Is Kmart alive? No, Kmart's dead. I can't keep track. Is Toys R Us still dead or are they back alive again? It's too much. Are they still dead? But then they're, okay, never mind. I can't keep up. So back when they had those stores that you could put things on layaway, right? You had an item, and it was yours, but you had to keep paying and redeem it. I had to buy it back, in a sense, to purchase it. Or maybe things are tough one holiday. Somebody goes into a pawn shop. They take a family heirloom, pawn it, buy Christmas presents, wait for that next paycheck, buy it back. That's the sense of the word redemption. A price is paid in order to restore someone, to rescue them, to restore them, and to give them a future again. For example, if a family member had been sold into slavery, in the ancient world, if you couldn't pay your debts, you became essentially a bond servant until your debt was paid. But a redeemer could intervene and pay your debt for you, right? So this is the, the family of laws in the Old Testament. Now, there's two laws in particular that relate to the book of Ruth. First was the redemption of a family uh, where a widow dies without having any children, right? So she's married, her husband passes away, they have no children. And what that means is that there's no safety and protection and provision for this woman anymore. And further, that the name of her husband, the name of her husband's family would pass away, would, would be kind of gone at that point. So there was a provision that, that if there was an eligible brother, he would marry the widow. And the widow's first child would be, legally speaking, his brother's child, okay? So in other words, he's, he's raising up offspring for his brother, so his brother's name does not perish from the earth. And his brother's child would then inherit, you know, whatever he had that his brother owned. So that's one set of provisions. Second relates to land. Now, the marriage and the land thing are kind of intermixed here. So the, the land provision is that if, that if somebody passes away and there's no heir for the land, the land may be sold, the land may be lost to the family, but a redeemer can come purchase the land. They almost have like the first right of purchase. They would come purchase the land and restore it to the line of the family. Now, Christopher Ashe is a Bible scholar from England, and I listened to an interview with him that was incredibly helpful on this point, because what you're going to see in Ruth 4 is a, a number of conversations about the land. And at first, it feels like, what's the deal with the land? I thought Ruth was the main thing that we're concerned with here. There's all this talk about the land. Well, if you don't understand the land, you don't understand Ruth 4. And if you don't understand Ruth 4, you don't understand the book of Ruth. Here's what's going on with the land. This is no ordinary land. Now, for Americans, look, if you've got, you know, if you have a house, you sell a house, you buy another house, you sell another house, right? We're not really familiar, especially within city areas, with a family piece of land. But for the Israelites, remember, they were brought out of Egypt. They were brought to which land? To the promised land, the land of milk and honey. God redeemed them from slavery in Egypt, gave them this 
land and each tribe was assigned land. There's all these laws in the Old Testament. You have to read page after page. And this tribe's land goes from here to here and here to here. And, and you're thinking, what is the deal with the land? Here's the deal with the land. The land, according to Christopher Rash, is summed up in this, this phrase. The land is their share in the blessings and promises of God, okay? So it's not just land. It, it is their share in the promises to Abraham, in the promises to Moses, and the promises to the people of God. All of that is bound up in their land. And so to lose the land would be the greatest tragedy that could befall a family in ancient times. Now, we don't really have any equivalent to this. I was trying to think of what, what's the kind of sort of equivalent to this uh, for Americans, and I couldn't come up with something, except maybe this, okay, maybe. One of my cousins is getting married, and so I, I'm, I'm getting a gift together for her. A bunch of my cousins, uh, like everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people in El Paso, right, everybody's everybody has like 30 cousins that live in El Paso. And every holiday, all the cousins get together, and you're not even sure what people's relationships are exactly. You're like, is that a real uncle, or is that kind of an uncle, or is that like somebody's third cousin that's kind of, my, you know, like, that's the way we roll here in El Paso, right? And we would go to my grandparents' house every holiday, right? New Year's Day, there'd be menudo, which I didn't like to eat, I'm sorry, but, and, and football, right? Or, or Easter, there would be Easter egg hunts in the backyard. But I especially remember Christmas. I remember Christmas at my dad's parents' house on Christmas Day, and we would have already helped. There was a separate time we'd go over and help decorate the tree. All the grandkids would get the boxes of ornaments out, and they would put them on the tree. And we'd, we'd come back on Christmas, and there'd be gifts for everybody, and we would do plays. I don't know why, but one of my older cousins was like, we're going to do a play of, of you know, baby Jesus and Mary and Joseph. And so she was assigning people roles, you know, like you're Joseph, you're, you know, and, and like, why do I have to be the sheep again? You know, that kind of thing. Like, I look stupid in a robe. Just put the bathrobe on. This is grandpa's robe. I look ridiculous. You know, like this is, this is what we did, right? And so as a gift to her and really to all of my cousins, I had an artist, I found an artist that does this, did like an illustration of that house that we spent so many Christmases and years in. And so he sent me yesterday the artwork for the house. And I was not prepared, like emotionally, to see the house. I mean, I, it's still here in El Paso and I still drive by it, but the people who bought the house after my parents, grandparents, you know, passed away, they, they have not kept up the front yard, doesn't look the same. So, but I got this illustration and there was something in my heart that was like, oh, it's the house. Like, and, and in a moment, it was so weird. In the moment, I was looking at the detail of this planter in the front and these three big windows in the front of the house, and it was like I could see through the windows to the Christmas tree. I don't know how to describe this. I, like, felt what I felt as a kid being surrounded by my family next to that tree. And that house, it's only as I've grown older that I understood what the house represented for my family. Because my grandfather, who bought the house, was an immigrant from Guadalajara. He, he lost everything. His family lost everything in Mexico, came to the U.S., restarted his life, had to scrap and scrape and fight for every dollar that he made. And that house, in a sense, represented that he made it in America. It's a beautiful home in Mission Hills good schools, right down the street from the university, right? What that represented for his family was, in a sense, his share in the American dream. 
And so all of that, as I look at this house, all of that is kind of wrapped up. I understand what I didn't understand as a kid. All of it's wrapped up. And that's maybe a tiny glimpse of what Naomi would feel walking back into Bethlehem after 10 years. Don't you think she walked out to her family's, her, her husband's field, her husband's family's field where she had been married and Elimelech had taken her and maybe there was a house that had been abandoned for 10 years and fields that were dead all around, and she longed for that home to be filled again. This is what Naomi has lost, in a sense. Not just, so Ruth is important, but there's, there's so much more going on in the background than just Ruth. What, what, what you're meant to see is a redeemer is somebody who acts on behalf of a relative, paying a cost to restore the family, to do three things, to rescue the family from the current situation they're in, to restore them to relationship and wholeness. And I'm gonna make up a word because I'm an English major. You're allowed to do that. They give you a license. The word I'm gonna make up today is refuturing. So there's a rescuing there, there's a restoring there, but there's a re-futuring, a giving of the future back to the family who has no future. This is what Ruth is asking Boaz to do for her. And this is what chapter four is all about. Now, we're gonna see three portraits in chapter four. The first portrait is this, the anti-redeemer. Verse one, now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, the gate being where all the business in the town was conducted. Behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And Boaz took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. So Boaz is not just like having him over for a chat. He's gathering a court, right? This is a legal proceeding here. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought, and that just pause there, actually. Naomi knows that she has no other thing of value on which she can live. So Naomi is at the point prior to this of going to sell her land, her family's share, in a sense, in the blessings of God, which is a great tragedy. But they're at that point. They have no other options other than Boaz. So I thought I would tell you of it, verse four, and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, this other man said, I will redeem it. Now this sounds like, uh uh-oh, this is not... Ruth, you know, three, where everything's gonna, this is the romantic story. There's some other guy that's jumping in here. But Boaz is smart, the way he sets this up. Verse five, then Boaz says, essentially, by the way, by the way, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take the right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So the Redeemer, we learn, there's been, you know, the writer who's been calling him the Redeemer, the Redeemer should have been in quotes the whole time. The so-called Redeemer turns out to not be a Redeemer 
at all. Now, here's initially what he thinks. He thinks, okay, I'm going to buy this land. I'm going to add it to my inheritance and my name and my uh, share of land that I give my children will be even larger and my name will be even greater as it's passed down among my descendants and I will have more to pass on to those who come after me. But Boaz says, okay, you also acquire Ruth and by the way, there's this law and you know, you probably should fulfill the spirit of that law. And he realizes something important. He realizes, uh uh-oh, if I marry Ruth, which, by the way, may be distasteful, you know, to begin with, the Moabite, like, some Moabite lady. I want a dead guy's Moabite wife is what he's thinking. And the first child of their union, their first son, if there is a son, he would then be legally Malon's child, Okay. It would not be his, I mean, it would be his child, but legally speaking, and that child would inherit this piece of land. And so this is what this guy's gonna have to do. He's gonna have to buy a parcel of land, do all the maintenance and upkeep to do it. And then if he has a son, he's gonna hand all of that back over to this other guy, lessening the inheritance for his other kids and his own name that he's so concerned about. Now, at first, it seems like, well, understandable, maybe. I read one commentator who said that, that what he does seems sensible in this sense, that if all he's judging by is what he senses and what he sees and what he feels and what's right in front of him, it makes sense. And yet, he misses something crucial in his calculation. There's a sharp irony here. When Boaz calls him friend, That word actually is a rhyming Hebrew word that you use in place of somebody's name. That the name used literally, translated by Dr. Ian Duguid, is Mr. So-and-so, meaning this. Dr. Duguid says this. The irony is that by seeking to protect his future legacy in this way, Mr. So-and-so ended up leaving himself nameless missing out on having a share in the biggest legacy of all, a place in God's plan of salvation. Meaning this, the way he's looking at life is just, you know, what's right in front of him, what makes sense for him. And he's concerned, man, I don't want my name to be lessened through my descendants. I don't want to do all of this and marry some lady that I want to marry in order to, to help a dead guy and his family name. And like, no, I don't want to do that. I'm thinking about myself and my name and my legacy. And the irony is in the book of Ruth, he is nameless. And here's the thing that I think we all need to consider. How often do we make decisions in the same way in our life? How often do we make the sensible choice? Do good says this. We often evaluate our involvement in things like evangelism and ministries of mercy according to the same scale as Mr. So-and-so. We ask, what's in it for me? Will it fulfill me? Will I enjoy it? What will it cost me? In doing the arithmetic, we get the answers as completely wrong as he did because we have left God entirely out of the equation. That's the anti-redeemer. Second portrait, the glad redeemer. And Boaz is one of my favorite characters in the entire Bible. I love this dude. Boaz is not clinical and impartial. He appears, he goes through the legal elements, but he cares deeply for Ruth and for her mother-in-law. And when he speaks of this other redeemer, when he says, if this other redeemer will redeem you, the language he uses, if this other redeemer is glad to redeem you, if he's more than willing to redeem you, then let him do it. If not, I'm gonna do it because the implication is he is glad to do it. 
This is not Boaz like, oh, I gotta you know, help a dead guy, you know, and his, you know, blah, blah, blah. He's thinking this girl is a catch. She can lift 80 pounds sacks of grain. She is buff, right? She's committed to God, coming from another country, striking out just like Abraham. I mean, this girl is amazing, and I can't believe I get to do this. This is his attitude, verse 7. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech and all that belong to Chilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. What do we see in Boaz? What kind of a redeemer is he? He is a redeemer par excellence. He is, first of all, a redeemer embodying the heart of the law. Uh, one of the things the scholars point out about the book of Ruth is that Ruth's function in the canon of Scripture is a particular function. There's a dispute over where it should go, sometimes in collections of the canon, because one of the ways it functions is that it helps, it becomes a lens through which to interpret the entire Mosaic law that the, the Mosaic law had all these you know, regulations and hear about the land and this about this and this about that. But more than all of that, what God's people should be getting through the Mosaic law is not just the regu specific regulations, but the heart of the law, what the law is intending to do. And this is what you see Boaz get. He gets it. This is the heart of the law, to love his neighbor as himself, to love the sojourner, to love the widow, to love the needy. This is what he does. And he pays a significant cost. John Stott comments, in all these cases of redemption in the Old Testament law, there was a decisive and costly intervention. Somebody paid the price necessary to free property from mortgage, animals from slaughter, persons from slavery, even death. If, look, this is the amazing thing about Boaz. Boaz pays a great cost. This is where it diverges a little bit from a Hallmark movie because in a Hallmark movie, it's not usually that expensive to you know, fall in love and live happily ever after, right? Nobody usually has to pay a decisive cost. This is what Boaz does though. Think about what he's going to do. Remember, he's well-to-do, right? He's got a large field, he's got standing in the community. He's risking his standing in the community, marrying a Moabite. How's the community gonna react to that? Right, he's, he's risking his wealth. All of a sudden, he's going to take on a wife and her, you know, her mother-in-law. I mean, that's a package deal. You know, he's going to have to provide for them. He's going to have to pay money to get their field because maybe there were lien or debts that it, it owed or there was some legal thing going on there. And so he's going to lose money, take on expenses, and then the first child that he has will not legally be his and then will take all the property that he's invested all this money in. And here's the thing. This will become clear later. Ruth had been married for a number of years, it appears, prior to her husband's death and had no children. Open God, oh my soul, he is strong and he is strong to save. Open God, he's a rock in your hiding place. He's a mighty fortress. Better news.
News Radio is a listener-supported ministry of Cross of Grace Church in El Paso, Texas with Pastor Ricky. We're so glad that you joined us today for a message that's focused on something life-altering that happened in a little town called Bethlehem. The birth of a baby boy in a stable shifted the course of mankind and set it on a course that will lead to ultimate triumph in the face of hardship and loss. I know that sometimes it's hard to see the light at the end of the tunnel in the midst of so much struggle, but I'm here to tell you that the birth of Jesus wasn't for nothing. Love, forgiveness, grace, and so much more was wrapped up in that tiny little bundle. This Christmas season, may you experience the joy of our Savior's birth and the blessings that it brought and is still bringing. Wondering what to do next now that our time is drawing to a close today? Go to betternewsradio.com and listen to this message again or other messages from Pastor Ricky. While you're there, don't forget our podcast so that you can listen anytime and anywhere. Twitter and Facebook are some other ways that you can stay connected with Better News Radio as well. Do you prefer the good old telephone to technology? Then you can give us a call at 915-562-7100. We look forward to hearing from you. Again, that phone number to call is 915-562-7100. We hope that you've been blessed by what you heard today. And we look forward to meeting with you on our next edition here on Better News Radio.